0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. Our special series of interviews with the candidates for Illinois governor continues this week with a visit from J.B. Pritzker. We also hear from two art historians on Greek myth and modern interpretations. All this plus the Trump diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for August 25, 2017. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to J.B. Pritzker, a gubernatorial candidate. Pritzker revealed on our show that he supports the legalization of marijuana in our state, explained how he would expand the Medicare rolls to provide coverage for low-income residents, and spoke forcefully about the need for both campaign finance reform and a progressive income tax. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday at 4 p.m.
1: Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPN-LP Chicago 105.5 FM. You're listening to LUPIN Radio. And we have our gubernatorial series. We've talked to a number of candidates. We're very happy to have the most recent uh, Cook County-endorsed candidate for governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. Welcome.
2: Hey, John. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for coming on the show. You Mm -hmm. are the first person to actually come to our studio. Thank you for being here.
2: Well, I love it. It's like the Taj Mahal here. My goodness. (laughs) We appreciate it. So, Taj
1: Mahal
3: of Community Radio. This
1: is a uh, a station inspired by taking something old and doing something new and and we are uh, very happy to have you here.
2: Well, that seems to be a lot of what's going on in the neighborhood here. Taking a lot of old things and making them new and for, you know, I love it. I love the economic development going on uh, all around here, Morgan Street everybody.
1: So, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how you got involved, how you were inspired uh, to run for Governor of Illinois.
2: Well, as you know, we've got some pretty major problems facing the state of Illinois. So I've been involved with uh, public service for more than 20 years, uh, engaged in issues that matter greatly to me. Uh, And today, you know, I look out at the state and I think we're under siege by Bruce Rauner and Donald Trump, frankly. Uh, So I was inspired to step up and run for governor because I think I can offer, with the experience that I've had creating jobs and Helping uh, most at-risk kids all around the state, 230,000 kids uh, getting school breakfast in low-income school districts because of the work that I've done, and thousands of people have created have created jobs and, and are in jobs because I founded 1871, and it's brought you know more than a hundred million dollars of capital into the state, and. Thousands of kids are getting early childhood education, at-risk kids in black and brown communities, low-income communities in the state are uh, being educated at very young ages because of the work that I've done. Um, and those are all things that I think I can help with statewide. We've got all these challenges that Bruce Reiner visited on the state, you know, two years without a budget. My goodness. And now he's created yet another crisis around schools. So I think we need a governor who's not only going to bring stability to the state, but also is focused on jobs, education and health care. What
1: is the number one issue that you're focusing on as you're talking to Illinoisans
2: right now? Well, it's interesting, you know. You travel the state, and you really hear, you know, healthcare, education, and jobs in different orders depending on where you go. Uh, when you head to downstate Illinois, um, over. Overwhelmingly, the number one issue is jobs, job creation. And as you know, many of the industries have left uh, areas of downstate. Um, You know, there are so many um, uh, families that are suffering there. And then, you know, there hasn't been a lot of investment even in infrastructure downstate. So we've got a lot of work to do there on job creation. Um, we've also got a safety net that's been blown apart by Bruce Rauner. Two years without a budget has meant that social service uh, agencies around the state, people are providing mental health facilities and, uh, and shelters for homeless people. And you know, just across the board, these services have been um, decimated. The psychiatrists have been laid off. Facilities have closed, et cetera. So we've got to rebuild that in the state. And you hear, depending on whether you're in Cook County or the Collars or downstate, in any different order. You know, like I said, education, health care, jobs. And those are all areas that I've been involved in, you know, for decades now.
1: You were talking a little bit about the, the divisions that people often refer to in the North and the South. And uh, as governor, how do you plan to
2: bring together uh, and unite the state? You know, again, Governor Rauner wants to create a war between Chicago and the rest of the state. The rest of the state in Chicago, we're all one state here. Um, and the issues that affect Chicago affect the rest of the state and the issues that affect the rest of the state affect Chicago. So let's you know throw the war out the window here and instead let's focus on what really matters to people. Let's defend their health care against what Trump is trying to do at the federal level, taking away health care. What would otherwise take away health care from a million Illinoisans, a million people would go without health care if – if Donald Trump has his way, so we need a governor who's going to stand up against that. Who's going to not only um, fight that, but also expand health care in the state. And that's why I introduced a plan called Illinois Cares, which would not only cut the cost of health care premiums for middle class families, but also make available to people striving to get to the middle class the ability to buy a lower cost health care uh, insurance plan. So those are, you know, some of the things that I think we need to focus on. Um, you know, I also want you to just you know, let's all pay attention to the fact that there was 0.5 percent job growth in the state last year. 0.5 percent—that's abysmal. It's in the bottom third of states in the United States. We we have the fifth largest economy in the United States. And we ought to be able to create jobs, and we have historically, but not under Bruce Rauner because he's created so much uncertainty. People have chosen not to invest. The people who are already here, by the way, the businesses that are already here that want to expand, they're holding off investing because the uncertainty in the state. And then, of course, companies that are outside the state that think about coming to Illinois because we've got such a great educated and dedicated workforce, um, they don't know why they should move into the state when we're not investing in K-12 education, we're cutting back significantly in university education, community colleges. Um, so there's just, a, you know, across the state, we have not created jobs and we need a governor who really knows how to do that. I've done that not only in my own private business where I've created thousands of jobs, but also in this nonprofit small business incubator that I created.
3: There's a lot to unpack there. And before we go any further, I just want to jump back to health care for a second, because that's something that's been a major issue. We've talked to all the candidates about. And I'm pleased to say that, you know, you're you're focusing on this. I think you've really come out in for a single payer kind of a public option. I am one of the one million Illinoisans that would lose health care if the ACA is repealed. But I would ask you just not really to play devil's advocate, but to inform our listeners, where would the money come from to form a new Illinois high-risk pool or a new insurance plan? Because we keep hearing our state is broke. We keep hearing we're in the gutter, all this stuff. Also, would this not be a tough sell with some of the people who keep saying that we're constantly out of money?
2: Well, back up and let me explain my plan, and then let's talk about a single-payer Um, My plan is actually would cost the taxpayers nothing uh, because we already have a low-cost health insurance plan in the state, um, and that's Medicaid. And allowing people to buy in at cost to the Medicaid program gives people access to health care. And it's at a cost that is um, a lot less than a private insurance plan would cost. Just opening that public option up would give people access to health care at a much lower cost. So that doesn't cover people who aren't covered today unless they have the ability to buy in at that lower cost. So it would expand coverage for people who could afford it. But what do we need more broadly in this country? We need a single-payer health care plan. That's Medicare for all. You know, you understand because you use the word, the larger the pool, the lower the cost. Right. On average, and that's why a national single payer makes so much sense. If we had a large pool of everybody, or even if you could create a regional pool, Um, you could lower costs for Illinoisans for health care. So those are both, uh, to me, those are congruous plans. Right now, my plan immediately upon becoming governor, we could implement that plan and save people money. Um, They could move into that plan or we can allow people to buy into it, like I said, at a lower cost. So it would expand coverage. But more broadly, we need the governor of Illinois to be advocating for a national single payer.
4: Uh, JB, I also was wondering about your experience in creating jobs. Um, You talk about how a lot of different businesses are looking in Illinois, and they're kind of skeptical for coming here because of the uncertainty of how the budgets are being passed. But they're also concerned about the pension funds, how they're underfunded. How would you propose to kind of solve those issues that are barriers for entry for uh, new businesses coming to Illinois?
2: Well, the, the pension problem that we've got in Illinois is a budget problem. It's related to the budget problem. So you've got to solve these things together. Now, look at the budget problem. So let's start with um, the fact that you need to balance the budget is required in the state of Illinois to balance the budget. Bruce Rauner was unwilling to do that. He never introduced a balanced budget, not once. Now, he complains a lot about spending in the state. But he never proposed, how are you going to cut spending and make the revenues meet the expenses? He just never did that, which is crazy. So that's the budget problem to start with. Then within the budget, as you know, are the payments that you have to make to the pension system. And those payments are going up and up and up because back in the mid-90s, a Republican governor and Democratic legislature, so blame to go around, put in place an amortization schedule for uh, the pension plan that would require required low payments in the first bunch of years. And I think that's because they all thought they might be out of office by the time we actually had to pay up. And then they skipped a few payments in between. And so here we are. And the payments have gone up and up. And now we're facing a problem where they're going up at a geometric level at the state. And and yet, you know, how are we going to pay for all that? Here's how you would do this if you had bought a home with an amortization schedule like this and then realized you're running into a problem. You'd step up your payments now and then level them out in the future, amortize it so that you could pay them out in the future. But don't just live with the amortization schedule that says that we're gonna to go to $16 billion of payments and $25 billion of payments. We don't have to do that. We actually, if we level it out, it makes budgeting much more reasonable Um, and we've got to do that because you can't raise taxes every year and you shouldn't have to raise taxes every year to pay for the pensions. But that is not the problem that's keeping people out of the state, if you ask me. The problem is more the budget problem. And yes, it's related. Those two things are related. But when when you let your schools deteriorate, businesses don't want to be in your state because they're workers who need retraining, who need additional training, Need to be able to go to your schools which you're now decimating letting faculty go and cutting back and they need to have their employees send their kids to good schools they want their kids you know the kids of their employees to go to good schools not to mention the executives in the business want to send their kids to good schools but we're we've you know we're hurting k-12 education so we need to look at holistically what are we going to do to improve education in the state and pay up for the things that really matter And to me, that says a progressive income tax. I believe that having a flat income tax, which by the way, only four states out of 50 have a flat income tax system. A progressive income tax allows us to step up and have the people who can most afford to pay, pay up first. And we can protect middle class and people striving to get to the middle class families. Um, And to me, that's just a fairer system and allows us to pay for the things that we want.
4: What groups in the Democratic
2: Party in Illinois want to support something like that? Well, most of the Democratic Party is, is in favor of progressive income tax. I mean, it is, frankly, all the other states that have moved away from a flat income tax system have realized that that's an antiquated system. In Illinois, we just haven't gotten there partly because it's a constitutional provision. Uh, in 1970, it was put into the state's constitution. And in order to remove it or to change it to a progressive income tax system, we need to pass by supermajorities an amendment to that constitution. You've got to have leadership that's stepping up and saying this is a priority for the state, and that's part of the reason why I'm running on a progressive income tax. I think it's a fairer system. I think most people, not just in the Democratic Party, but across the state, believe it's a fairer system. And so, again, with leadership, I believe we can get it passed with supermajorities in both houses.
4: So you know, some of the criticism people have of Rahner is that he is of the uh, the so-called one percent. He's a billionaire. He was an advisor to Rahm Emanuel. Is Rahm Emanuel the same as Bruce Rauner? Are they the same cloth? Or is a big question in my mind. And you know what? We currently have uh, other um, candidates for governor who b- belong to the same kind of class. You know, so people are concerned about the fact that we have the uh, the very rich or the wealthy uh, <clears throat> running against each other. How is it going to be different? Why would you be different than Rauner? Why would uh, Mr. Kennedy be different? And I mean, that's that's one of the big questions I think some people have, because it seems like the system is rigged for those who can afford to run. Right. We've had we've had uh, different guests here who talked about mortgaging their homes to be able to run for a state rep and such. And, you know, it seems today because of the passing of uh, the legislation by Congress to allow unlimited spending on on, uh, political campaigns that no one can run unless
2: they are from a wealthy family or whatever. Well, as you know, we've got, I think, nine candidates running for governor in this race. So um, so people are running. Um, uh, second, we, we need campaign finance reform in this country and in this state. Citizens United opened up this floodgate of money. It was wrong. It was wrongly decided. We now are living with that. And, you know, unfortunately, we, as we need to go after it on a federal level, we also need to deal with on a state level, how do we limit campaign finance It's a real challenge. But meanwhile, Bruce Rauner wrote a $50 million check in December. I wasn't in this race. He wrote a $50 million check from his own personal account into his campaign account. Bruce Rauner did, and then he got another twenty million dollars from a really wealthy guy who's on the you know right wing Koch brothers network guy, mm-hmm. um, who you know gave him another twenty. Bruce Rauner, so he starts out. He's got about seventy, seventy two million dollars right now in his campaign account. He's the one, right, that you look at and say, oh my goodness. Well, how did we get here? That's crazy. So that's a start. Um, in my case, let me just say this: the you know this race isn't about money; it's about values. It's about what you stand for. You know what I've stood for my whole life is progressive democratic values. I've been knocking on doors for progressive Democrats since I was 12 years, 11 years old with my mother. Um, I've been engaged in fighting for LGBT rights and um, fighting for choice, and I've been engaged in fighting for working families and making sure that we're improving our education system. These are all progressive values. These are all democratic values, and that's what I'm running on. I'm just what I'm doing is trying to communicate to people about who I am. You've seen that I have not attacked any of my opponents in this Democratic primary. I'm focusing on the failure that we have as a governor, Bruce Rauner, and I'm telling my own story about what I stand for, what I've done. I don't think that somebody who steps into this race and has all the name recognition should have all the advantages. It shouldn't just be famous people, celebrities, who get to run. I think it should be, you know, anybody should be able to run. It's why we need campaign finance reform. It's also why I've tried to introduce myself across the state to let people know just who I am so they have choices. Just to
3: follow up on that, what would you do to implement campaign finance reform? Because Ed's right. There's a ton of money, not just at the gubernatorial level, which I believe is shaping up to be the wealthiest race in this country's history, but at every level. And this is a real concern. As he mentioned, we have had a number of guests who represent us directly in our ward and you know, at the statehouse level that are spending $250,000, 300000 to run. And it doesn't seem right. And these, this money is seeping into judicial elections, which it never was. Um, it's a real concern for our democracy.
2: So what would you as governor do? It is a real concern, and you know that in this last cycle and the cycle before, the Republicans – and again, it is the Koch brothers' network. Do not mistake it. It really is you know this national network. They've gone into every state around the Midwest, and they've put in money in these local races. Because they know that, you know, it's the local officials that end up electing the regional officials that end up electing the statewide officials. Um, And they did that here in Illinois. And that's why, even in the face of Hillary Clinton winning this state by 17 percent against Donald Trump, they nevertheless won four legislative seats, these right wing Republicans. They won four House seats and one Senate seat, even in the face of an overwhelmingly good Democratic year in Illinois. So it is a real challenge. We need to, you know, implement campaign finance. It's crazy to me that, you know, there's a, this cap where, you know, if you write a $250,000 and $100 check to yourself, as one of my opponents did in this race to break the caps, that now the caps are off. Right, so anybody you literally could get—I don't know—you know, Paul Allen or somebody who's you know famous today because they've discovered the USS Indianapolis and of course because of Microsoft. But, um, but you know, you could get somebody to write a—I don't know—you know—a ten million dollar check. And of course, Bruce Rauner got you know somebody to write him a twenty million dollar check. And 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 the year two years before he got. Uh, something like uh, $30 million from this Koch Brothers network in, in chunks of 5 and $10 million. So it's wrong. We, you know, we need to, to fix the system. There are a lot of proposals out there that, that I think are reasonable. I think the biggest thing you need is transparency. Where's the money coming from? Who are those people who are writing those checks? Well, I, I like
4: that you were behind campaign finance reform. Uh, so I guess the thing is, if you are to become the candidate for a Democratic Party, how are you going to crush runner
2: <laughs> well i i first of all we, we need to stand on principle as democrats as progressive democrats for the things that we know need to be done in this state
4: now i want to interrupt you do you mean hillary clinton style progressivism or are you talk about a new democratic progressive attitude
2: well you know i do not believe that we should be dividing this party you know all we right. fundamentally believe in the same things you can have you know we can split hairs here and there about you know one of the candidates believed in you know a $14 minimum wage one believed in a $15 minimum wage you know we we can have differences of opinion within the party but we are one party we really are and the fundamental values i mean i i have been uh, together with people who supported bernie sanders together with people who supported hillary clinton and we share almost every value in common. So I do not believe in that division. Now, um, the, the what we need to stand on, I mean, let me ask you, do you believe in a progressive income tax? you know, do you believe in funding education because it's the fundamental, you know driver of not only economic growth but also what's best for our kids?
4: Yeah, I mean, and, I support those things. Those are very simple, rational decisions we could all make of people of any political stripes. But as you know, it's ve- it's we live in this very strange age where the truth and facts don't matter anymore. What if Ron starts spending a lot of money just spinning all kinds of tales, of webs of lies and all kinds of smear campaigns with this money in the media through his through the base of the Republican party, are we going to be able to beat him? I mean, who could who could believe that we lost the lax election to this guy? I mean, it's just hard to believe that any of this is happening today. So OK, if the Democratic Party is united and we're sticking together and we, we believe in these progressive values, how are we going to mobilize and excite people to come out and defeat these guys?
2: There are two things that we absolutely must do in order to win. The first is that we've got to rebuild the infrastructure of the Democratic Party such that we can go door to door and identify our voters because that's how you win. That is how you win. You've got to identify the voters, do the plus minus zero, the, you know, the, the one to five, you know, who's on your side and make sure they get to the polls. OK, that's the number one thing. The number two thing is the Republicans figured out how to suppress the vote mm-hmm. in 2016 and they successfully did it in a lot of other states. They're going to do it in Illinois if, if we don't stop them. So when I started this campaign, I started with the idea of I went to Washington and met with the folks who were trying to deal with what the Republicans did to suppress the vote to make sure that I could bring it into Illinois to make sure that we don't allow that to happen. Together, with that that goes together, by the way, with what they used to suppress the vote, which is social media. We need to be much better than the Republicans are at social media. And that's why I, I've hired, I think, the best social media team out there. We're, you know, Every day we're getting better and better at it. It's important for us as Democrats, it means not just for my campaign, but as Democrats, that we communicate with people in a 21st century fashion. And that's what we're, we're gonna be able to do in the general election. But in the end, it is about message. It is about sticking to our knitting, about are we, you know, we are the party that is going to build back the education system that Bruce Rauner has helped uh, to, you know, decimate in the state. And we're going to build back on health care to add people to the roles, not subtract. And then finally, we got to be a party that creates jobs. We, we've always been that party, by the way. We're good at creating jobs. But we haven't done that recently, and Bruce Rauner hasn't done a good job for Illinois. It's time to get back to that fundamental.
1: You're speaking of some of the assets that Illinois has, and I think one of the hats that you'll have to wear if elected governor would be our chief marketing officer as amongst other things. You, you kind of talked about a lot of the, those those things that make Illinois great and could potentially attract folks to create jobs. What are, those, what are some other things that you want to highlight or will highlight about the state?
2: Well, let's start with, um, unlike Bruce Rauner, I think we have the greatest state in the United States. Um, Bruce Rauner has been out there bad mouthing uh, Illinois. Why do you, you know, it's no wonder that nobody wants to move to Illinois if you listen to Bruce Rauner about Illinois. Um, we have, two, you know, the two great assets that, that that people need to pay attention to about our people, and that's we have an educated workforce and a very dedicated workforce. Our, our our employees stay at work at the same company for longer periods of time than other states. And that's important to companies. People want lunch. Longevity. They want people who are dedicated. They don't want to have to retrain, retrain, or, you know, hire new people and train them up, train them up. That costs a lot of money. For, so it's important to, to have an educated workforce to attract jobs to the state. It's, an, it's a really critical thing for us to l- make sure we're marketing about our state. The next thing is that, it, it, as you know, in Chicago, we have really built a great technology industry here. We are now in the top 10 of technology startup hubs in the world in in Chicago, and I've been proud to play a, a role in that. Um, that's a very important thing for industry of all sorts, by the way, whether you're in manufacturing or services business. The fact that we have technologists, the fact that we have developers, the fact that we have entrepreneurs, that we have all these startups, that's attractive to other large companies. We need to do that, by the way, all across the state and bring companies in Based upon the greatness of the state of Illinois, I would be a great chief marketing officer for the state.
1: You talked a lot about uh, infrastructure earlier, and, and we know that in Chicago and, and in the state of Illinois, 80% of the rail in the United States comes through the city of Chicago. What are some of those infrastructure projects you'd, you'd like to
2: focus on? My goodness, we have so much to do in infrastructure. It's been a while. Um, so I, I do believe there's going to be a federal infrastructure bill which will help us pay for. We should talk about what it is we want to pay for, but 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 how we're going to pay for it is very important because, again, Bruce Rauner has put us in this situation where we're now near junk status in terms of our borrowing capability in the state. Um, so we need to get back to, you know, a situation where we're not heading toward junk status. That's the first thing. Second, we, you know, we need to – what I want to do is be able to match those federal dollars um, when that infrastructure bill gets passed because even as unpopular as Donald Trump is and as crazy as I think he is, um, I, I, you know, the Republicans do seem to want to get together with Democrats to to get a, a – you know, maybe a tr- almost trillion-dollar investment in infrastructure – What do we need here? Well, of course, you know, we need to rebuild our roads and our bridges all across the state of Illinois. Um, We've got a big infrastructure projects like, you know, around Sangamon County, you know, having a multi-lane highway. Um, there our rail has been falling apart we need to do more investment in rail and transit. my goodness look around the city of Chicago you know everywhere you look as much investment has gone in you know we need so much more coming in so these are examples of things and then let's not forget by the way that, that we've got to build there are university buildings that need to be built you know in, in expanding our universities we need to make sure we're you know in the modern era we've got great laboratories we've got great facilities. Um, So there's not only vertical infrastructure, you know, and horizontal infrastructure. We've got to focus on all of that together.
4: You know, John and I and Jamie like to talk about how the city of Chicago needs to have fast Internet. Would you be up for a municipal or a statewide, you know, super Internet, like a Google fiber thing for our communities just to use like water? As, gas.
2: as a matter of fact, i sorry to even interrupt. Right? I, as a matter of fact, I introduced exactly that plan for the entire state of Illinois because we need high-speed Internet everywhere. If you want to create jobs, I mean, let's talk about, you know, Let's talk about Macon County. Let's talk about Hancock County. I mean, places downstate where, you know, they've got serious challenges in job creation, right? If you just open up high-speed broadband internet, you create job opportunities. So that's number one. Here in the city of Chicago, there are people who can't access high-speed broadband, you know? And that's crazy to me. It does limit
4: your ability to to compete on an international uh, scale. If you're a small business person or you're a large business, you obviously know what's going on in the technology industry here in Chicagoland and Illinois. So... That's great to hear. That's really amazing to hear. It's job it's yeah. job creation by yeah. the way
2: also in yeah. low income communities. Think about what Absolutely. we can do, you know, in the lowest income communities. I mean, give it this these are the areas that don't have I'm talking about in cities in the lowest income communities. They don't have broadband internet available to them. The more available we can make it, the more likely it is that someone can help start their own small business in that community. Now, I've put out a plan for job creation helping small businesses get started, something I've done well, I think, through the creation of 1871, through my own business. I know how to do that. And it's putting together capital availability with technical assistance and mentorship. Though That's the best way to get businesses off the ground. And if you do that in low-income communities, not only do you create new businesses and jobs in those communities, but you keep the equity and ultimately the profits in the community. And that's how you build prosperity. Yeah. That's fantastic. We have a question,
4: actually, from our social media feeds. Several people wanted to know if you're in favor of
2: legalizing a recreational marijuana in the state of Illinois. I am in favor of, of legalizing marijuana, and not only that, but uh, you know it's important to recognize it's not just because we can get 350 to $700 million worth of tax revenue in the state, which would be much needed, but also because it's been very unsafe. As you know, it's widely available— Um, and yet very unsafe. And so we've got health problems as a result of it being illegal. And then next, you've got the problem of, um, you know, it frankly needs criminal justice reform around it, too. There are people who are sitting in prison who, you know, with relatively small amounts of marijuana. Um, And guess what? It tends to have a racial bias to it. You know, kids who live in, you know, all white neighborhoods tend not to end up being those kids that end up getting wrapped up in problems having marijuana and the kids who are in African-American communities, those are the ones who are going to prison. So it seems to me that that criminal justice reform is a big reason to legalize marijuana. Um, and so those th- three things together, uh, but I don't want to just put it on the tax revenue. Most people, I, sometimes I stand up in front of crowds and, and and say, you know, let's legalize it and tax it. And of course, I get a big applause for that because there are a lot of people in favor of that. Uh, for the tax revenue, too. But I, I don't want people to forget about safety and criminal justice. Jimmy, we know we're running out of time, but there's one question we've asked every candidate that we do have to ask you, and that
3: is, obviously, Chicago's got a problem with violence. We've had a tremendous number of uh, shootings. We've had a lot of murders, unfortunately. We've asked every candidate what the governor would, would do about that, and it's only fair
2: to ask you as well. Yeah, important to recognize that we've got um, uh, we've got... Lots of guns that are pouring in over the state lines from states that have even lower levels of regulation than we do. So there's got to be more enforcement around that. Um, Secondly, as you know, people resort to violence often out of desperation, um, out of need. And it's been this two years of Rauner creating a crisis in our state budget that's caused so many social service agencies, many of them, by the way, in the poorest communities, Um, to fold or close down. And the result of that is that people's last vestige of connection to society is then cut off. You know, if you don't have access to that mental health facility that you were accessing before, or the psychiatrists have been laid off, so, you know, you're having a harder time. Or, as is the case in many downstate communities, you close a facility and now getting to it is not 45 minutes away, it's three hours away. Um, And so we've got to restore that social safety net because that will do a great deal. And then finally, you know, there's that old expression about, you know, about, you know, the, the best violence prevention is a good job. And if we can create a pathway for many people to jobs and then actually have jobs at the end of that pathway, um, that removes the, you know, the likelihood that there's going to be violence in the streets. And we've got to deal with this problem. It is a local problem, but it's a statewide problem, too. I, I can tell you if you go to Peoria and Carbondale, you hear many of the same things that you hear right here in Chicago.
1: As we're getting uh, done here, we just is, is there anything you'd like to uh, let our listeners know before you leave?
2: Wow, just open it up, yeah. huh? Well, I could start singing. Um, <laughs> we no, could, we I, could have I, you <laughs> here all day, JB, but we're told we got to let you go. So, Well, I mm-hmm. g- I, you know, the last thing I'd tell you is... Um, I'm just really excited. When I drive around the neighborhood here, I'm excited to see so much economic development, so many new businesses getting started here. Um, there's an arts community that's flourishing around here, which is amazing. You guys are kind of part of that, I think. Um, and so this has become kind of a hip area that's been revitalized. I love that idea, and I want to help do that across the state. We've got to help local communities take you know, neighborhoods that have been maybe forgotten and you know, it insists that we pr- it, when we provide the opportunity for small businesses to get going in those communities and economic development projects that we can really lift up. I think whole communities like like has been done right here.
1: Well, we want to thank you very much for your time. We know you're busy, and, and good <coughs> luck with the rest of the campaign.
2: Thanks, John. Nice to see you guys.
4: Yeah, JB, it was really a pleasure to hear your ideas. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you, you so much, guys. Thank
2: Thanks, Jim. <laughs>
3: The Trump Diaries. Steve Bannon exits the White House and promises war. Republicans abandon Trump over his remarks on Charlottesville. Tens of thousands protest against Trump across the nation. And a rally in Phoenix turns violent. And more troops are sent into a 16-year-old war. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 210, August 17th. Trump continues to be increasingly isolated today after aligning himself with the neo-Nazi protesters in Charlottesville. Trump continued to double down, bemoaning the loss of beautiful memorials and claiming the removal of Confederate monuments was an assault on American culture. Trump's support is starting to erode further with a key Republican, Bob Corker, questioning his competence and stability. James Murdoch, the head of 21st Century Fox, also an unofficial advisor to Trump, delivered a stinging public rebuke. The president's top advisors described themselves as stunned several said they were unable to see how Trump's presidency would recover. And the White House told Republicans to say Trump's comments on Charlottesville are, quote, entirely correct. A briefing encouraged members to echo Trump's lines that both sides acted inappropriately and bear some responsibility. The memo adds that, quote, the media reacted with hysteria and that, quote, we should not overlook the facts just because the media finds them inconvenient. Chief White House strategist Steve Bannon attacked white nationalists as clowns as the fallout from the violent protests continue. In an interview Bannon thought was off the record with The American Prospect, Bannon said, "Ethno nationalism, it's losers." He also contradicted Trump on Korea saying, "Quote, there's no military solution here." and Trump's business councils disbanded after multiple executives quit while was equating white nationalist hate groups with the protesters opposing them. The Strategic and Policy Forum called to inform Trump the group would disband. After the call, Trump tweeted, it was his decision to disband that council. Rather than putting pressure on the business people, I am ending it. An anonymous posted what it claims are the private cell phone numbers and email addresses for 22 Republican members of Congress in a bid to push for President Trump's impeachment. The move was sparked by Trump's comments about the violence. And activists in Durham, North Carolina, attempted to surrender en masse at a courthouse. About 100 members of the community attempted to surrender for the felony charge of pulling down a statue of a Confederate soldier on Monday. Eight have been arrested so far. All were released without bail. Prominent local politicians are asking for all charges to be dropped. And the Trump administration agreed to continue making health care subsidy payments after the CBO reported that cutting off the payments would increase federal spending and cause insurance premiums to rise sharply. Day 211, August 18th. Stephen Bannon was removed from the White House today. Trump told aides that he had decided to remove Bannon. Bannon insisted that parting of ways was his idea and that he had submitted his resignation to the president on August 7th. Bannon had been under heavy fire ever since the neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. By nightfall, Bannon was in charge of Breitbart News again and one of his colleagues had tweeted out, hashtag war. Bannon followed that up by saying the Trump presidency, quote, we fought for, is over. And Mitt Romney became the latest high-profile Republican to criticize Trump, urging him in strong language to apologize or risk subjecting the country to, quote, an unraveling of our national fabric. The mother of Heather Heyer, who was murdered by a neo-Nazi, said on Friday after seeing Trump's comments equating white supremacist protesters with those demonstrating against them, she will not speak with him. I'm not talking to the president now. I'm sorry, said Susan Bro, after what he said about my child. And Jeff Sessions criticized Chicago's sanctuary city policy, saying, quote, the respect for the rule of law has broken down. He tied the violence in Chicago to its refusal to cooperate with federal immigration authorities, arguing that it's made Chicago a haven for predators and drug dealers. And Trump's personal lawyer forwarded an email claiming that Black Lives Matter has been totally infiltrated by terrorist groups, and that Robert E. Lee's rebellion was the same as the American Revolution against England. John Dowd forwarded the email with the subject line, the information that validates President Trump on Charlottesville to conservative journalists, government officials, and some friends. Day 212, August 19th. Trump abandoned plans for an infrastructure council after two other business advisory councils disbanded in protest. That council would have advised Trump on his plan to spend as much as $1 trillion upgrading roads, bridges, and other public works. And Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller is focusing on Trump Jr.'s intent when he met with a Russian lawyer as he investigates possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. Trump Jr. has acknowledged he was looking for negative information about Hillary Clinton, but he claimed he didn't receive anything useful. And the entirety of Trump's Arts Commission resigned in protest over his comments on the violence in Charlottesville and called on Trump to resign as well. The Presidential Arts and Humanities Panel, whose members are from Broadway, Hollywood, and the broader arts community said in a letter to Trump that, quote, supremacy, discrimination, and vitriol are not American values. Your values are not American values. The first letters of each paragraph spelled out the word resist. And at least 15 charities have now canceled planned fundraising events at Mar-a-Lago. The Red Cross, Salvation Army, Susan G. Komen Foundation, Cleveland Clinic, and the American Cancer Society said they would not hold their 2018 galas at the resort as planned. Day 213, August 20th. USA Today reported that the Secret Service has blown through its budget to pay agents because of Trump's frequent travel and large family. In addition, Budget Director Mick Mulvaney refused an emergency request from the Secret Service earlier in the year to increase the budget. He turned that down without comment. Over 1,000 agents have hit the federally mandated caps for salary and overtime allowances that were meant to last the entire year. The Secret Service only has enough money to continue protecting Trump and his family through September. Senators have also expressed concern over the high rate of attrition in the service after a series of high-profile scandals. If Congress doesn't lift the cap, a third of the agency's agents would be working overtime without being paid. And the Post reports that Republican political committees have quietly spent nearly $1.3 million at Trump-owned properties this year. Federal Election Commission records show the RNC paid the Trump International Hotel in Washington $122,000 last month, and at least 25 congressional campaigns, state parties, and the Republican Governors Association have spent close to $500,000 at Trump hotels or golf resorts this year. And the wife of the Treasury Secretary, Louise Linton, replied condescendingly to an Instagram poster about her lifestyle and belittled the woman Jenny Miller, a mother of three from Portland, Oregon, for having less money than she does. The wife of Stephen Munchen wrote, quote, I'm pretty sure we paid more taxes toward our day trip than you did. Pretty sure the amount we sacrificed per year is a lot more than you'd be willing to sacrifice if the choice was yours. You're adorably out of touch. Your life looks cute, she said before concluding, go chill out and watch the new Game of Thrones. It's fab. Day 214, August 21st. Trump has quietly disbanded the National Climate Assessment Panel, a group aimed at translating scientific findings into concrete guidance for both public and private sector officials. Those members had been writing the Climate Science Special Report due for release next year, which has estimated that human activities are responsible for an increase in global temperatures of 1.1 to 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit from 1951 to 2010. That report was leaked earlier this year to The New York Times. And Trump's pick for the USDA chief scientist argued that homosexuality could lead to the legalization of pedophilia. Sam Clovis also said homosexuality is a choice and the science on, quote, LGBT behavior is unsettled. In addition, Clovis is not an agricultural scientist and lacks, quote, the specialized training or significant experience in agricultural research required by law for that position. It is unclear if Clovis's nomination will be confirmed. Day 215, August 22nd. Trump moved more troops into Afghanistan. He now supports the Pentagon's proposal to add nearly 4,000 troops to the roughly 8,400 Americans there now. Trump also said the U.S. will shift away from a time-based approach to a results-based approach but declined to specify benchmarks for success. Trump added there would be no, quote, blank check and that a hasty withdrawal would create a vacuum for terrorists, including ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Treasury Department has sanctioned China and Russia for assisting North Korea's development of nuclear weapons and missiles. Six individuals and 10 companies were added to the sanctions list in order to increase economic leverage on North Korea and reduce the flow of money to its weapons development and pro-Trump rallies in 36 states have been canceled. The America First rallies were scheduled for September 9th, but quote, out of an abundance of caution due to the recent violence in America and Europe, the rallies will be held as online demonstrations because quote, citizens cannot peacefully express their opinion without risk of physical harm from terror groups, domestic and international. And the Senate Intelligence Committee wants Congress to declare WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence service. That would force spy agencies to release information about Russian threats to the US and open Julian Assange and his organization to new surveillance. The bill passed the committee 14 to one last month. Day 216, August 23rd. Trump delivered an angry Jeremy against the news media at an ugly and tense rally in Phoenix last night, claiming the media is, quote, dividing the country. He also implied he would pardon controversial former Sheriff Jarapeo, but not tonight. Returning repeatedly to the incidents in Charlottesville, which he's been severely criticized over, Trump claimed the media failed to focus on so-called anarchists, and he spit out the word Antifa. Protests surrounded that rally outside, and police fired tear gas and rubber bullets into the crowd after the rally as scenes grew increasingly tense. And the New York Times is reporting that the relationship between Trump and Mitch McConnell has disintegrated. McConnell privately expressed uncertainty Trump will be able to salvage the administration after a series of unforced errors. Apparently angry phone calls have been traded between the two. McConnell is mobilizing a defense against senators that Trump targets. And German police have seized 5,000 Trump-shaped ecstasy tablets, worth tens of thousands of euros. The Washington Post says that to date Trump has made 1,057 false and misleading claims. Trump averages nearly five false claims a day, and more than 30 of his misleading statements have been repeated three or more times. Just 28% of Americans approve of Trump's handling of Charlotte. 40% of Americans now support impeaching him. But among Trump's core base, 65% of those identifying themselves as Trump supporters say there is, quote, nothing Trump could say or do that would cause them to give up their support. These are the Trump
5: Diaries. Size Matters Smith Kyle Seismankowski. On this episode, we're talking about bonding. And we're going to one of my favorite spots in Bridgeport. All right, hold on now. I just got it. Are you tagging right. the bus stop? Nah, it's squatter code. Let's others know what's going on. Do all you guys use it? Oh, you better believe it. Some guys I know can't even spell Bridgeport, so these glyphs is all they got, you know? Can't spell you nothing. You can
6: get phones and use emoji. Emoji? Uh, They're smiley faces and pictures. Um, Sometimes it can be tough to get emotions through text messages.
5: (laughs) Why why don't no one just pick up the phone?
0: People are crippled by luxury.
5: Thank you. Finally, someone says what I've been saying for years. (laughs) You're a very eloquent speaker, Jessica. Thank you, Kyle. Say, where'd you live before you moved to Bridgeport?
6: Oh, uh, sort of southwest of here. Joliet area.
5: Oh, yeah? What were you doing down there?
6: Catching up on reading, mostly.
5: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's it's. That's, uh, that's, that's oh, cool. Oh,
6: wait, look. Someone drew a squatter code on this light
5: pole. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a very good eye, Jessica. You see the square? This means a campsite stash.
6: Sweet. What's in a stash?
5: Uh you know, supplies, food, drinks, stuff like that.
6: We're at a gravel-filled, vacant lot right with the, overgrowth the and a lot of tires.
5: Ah, curse word. What? There was a hole in the fence right here, and the city patched it, I guess, that's... Damn, I'm too old to be jumping fences this <laughs> Oh, well,
6: hold on. There's a gate.
5: Yeah, it's padlocked.
6: Oh, I let can't me see. I can jump.
5: That's... I'm too yeah, old. Yeah, um, just a little
6: gonna... jiggle here, and the doing? tumbler should... Pa! There we go.
5: You just picked a padlock? Where'd you learn how to do that? Uh, you can only read so many books, Kyle. I'm very intrigued and slightly frightened. Hey, come on. Let's see what's in this stash of yours. It's over there in the weeds. Oh, the cooler? Go ahead
6: and open it. Looks like skunked beer and a book of matches. What do we do with this?
5: <coughs> <coughs> Welcome to your first official Bridgeport tire fire. My throat is burning. <laughs> used to be, you could find tire fires every night of the week. How? Why'd they stop? <coughs> All them guys are dead. <laughs> From what? I think they died of black lung. <coughs> All of them? <coughs> yeah. We should probably go. <laughs> I think I'm good here. Now we should go. Tire smoke's habit forming. Put something over. Sure your it face. is.
0: I, I can leave whenever I want. <laughs> we should go. Trust me.
5: Listen, listen, I know it's early, but I think you already need to quit tire fires. do Don't
6: judge me. No. I'm gonna I'm gonna Come shut on. this thing off.
0: Divisive, Lumpen Radio's art and movie discussion show, has been exploring classic works of Western art. This excerpt from August's show focuses on Dutch master Paulus Potter, who is an early romanticist specializing in animals. Divisive, with Leah Gibson and Craig Harshaw, airs on the third Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m.
7: Um, before we go to break, I want to just hit one more painting that we looked at in Gallery 213, the same gallery. And this is by Paulus Potter. It's called um, Entitled Two Cows and a Young Bull Beside a Fence in a Meadow <laughs> from 1647. And uh, just to give you a sense of Potter, he was born in Enkhausen. So he painted cows mostly. So that's kind of cute, uh, <laughs> which was an important port city um, in 1625. Um and he 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 came from a lower middle class um, upbringing. Um, he only lived to be 28, but he produced more than a hundred paintings before that time because he started his training when he was 12 years old. Um, and he died of tuberculosis at the untimely age of 28. And I think a, a couple reasons to bring him up. Um, one is that he had the most successful painting um, of. Um, of his time, which was a painting of a cow. His career began because a wealthy uh, woman bought a painting of uh, that he did of a cow urinating, and it was quite a controversy. So it was one of the first art world controversies because, oh my gosh, this is a little indecent to see a cow urinating, but she wanted this in her living room, so she you know bought it. And then it became all the rage to get a cow painted by Potter. And this is one of the things that this isn't an academy deciding that cows are beautiful subjects or, you know, anything like this. This is actually the marketplace and people deciding. Um, uh, So it's kind of the beginning of our contemporary art world, as you would see it. And it began, you know, in many ways with cows. And these are incredible paintings of cows. If you really look at this painting closely, you can see the cow dung. You know, uh they're on the ground all around. Exactly. So you know this was this was actually um observed, either painted in real time, or cows were really being observed. This is
6: a really shiny painting of cows. There are you can see kind of uh the sores yes. on the hind legs of the cow. Um, like you said, there's the cow dung that's almost like a, a minor relief. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the paint, you can just kind of yeah. experience all the glory of these three cows in the pasture. But also, if you look further back, you can kind of see the village, the town. Um, you can. So that's also really Interesting, And
7: it's done from kind of a low angle that almost ennobles the cows in like a really kind of interesting way. And also, if you really look at it closely and you notice the dead tree over to the side, you see that there are these little tiny birds, you know, on the the dead tree. So it's it's very much a nature painting. He really was an incredible painter, and it's amazing that he was able to accomplish like this level of work. Um, He would have only been like 19 years old when he painted this. So...
6: All right, so we were just talking about uh, Potter's uh, painting Two Cows and a Young Bull Beside a Fence in a Meadow, 19, uh, 1647. Yes. And Craig, I as we were looking at these paintings and, and talking about how we would talk to our listeners about what's the significance of these paintings that are at the Art Institute and why are we talking about them in conversation, um, with recent events. Um, And so my question is, is is sort of like, why, you know, and why these paintings, what does this have to do with magical modernity? What makes, I mean, the paintings literally glisten under museum light. So it's kind of, it's interesting to kind of think about what is the power of this painting and the next painting that we'll talk about in terms of what makes this what makes this so popular? What makes a painting of a cow really popular? What's the significance of that? Because we spent we spent our entire last episode talking about a very different kind of art. So, yeah. and we were kind of talking about the magical modernity of those pieces, of kind of this fusion of the the uh, St. Luke as the artist and, and kind of this transfer of divinity onto artists or this transfer of power um, from the church kind of onto the role of, of I guess, miti- mitigated by like this artist figure that would be in the biblical narrative, these figures. Um, so from kind of moving from there and thinking about a painting of cows, how do we get there? <laughs>
7: well, and, and partly you get there because those paintings that we were looking at before were primarily commissioned by the church and they were propaganda, you know, to save the Catholic Church in most cases. Um, And now we're looking at paintings that are, do not have that direct link to any kind of central body or theology or ideology. Like what's happened is that capitalism starts itself prior to any revolution starting it right? The French Revolution is a long way off. We're going to get to it but it's a tonight, but it's a long way off. Um, so the bourgeois class has not really established itself, but it is establishing itself because of changes in economy. And because of mercantile capitalism um, happening, you suddenly have more people who have um, not just a little bit of disposable cash, but enough cash to become art collectors. And they want to do that. And who knows what this new class of people that have never existed before are going to want? Who knew? It's urinating cows that they want. <laughs> it's it's things that they might be nostalgic for in some ways because maybe some of them have moved from a more um, agrarian um, place to a more cosmopolitan urban place um, or things they think are beautiful, which might not be the same thing that a king and the kind of, all demented king and all the demented people around him in a royal context would think were beautiful or what cardinals and bishops you know think are beautiful in terms of a church um, situation
0: the lumpen week in review is produced by the staff and volunteers of wlpn lp chicago the community radio of the future the week in review is edited and engineered by logan bay the Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.